This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The working world is mostly keyed to extroverts. You know, people go around going, oh, I'm amazing at my job, you know, and, and sort of making a big show at it. And we're like, oh, okay, that guy really takes pride in his work. But I think everybody does. You know, in, in general, people just have really different ways of manifesting it. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show. So glad you could join us here in uh, the middle of season 13. I am so excited to introduce you to our guest today. Her name is Melissa Swift. She leads transformation solutions for Mercer US and Canada. She's responsible for the firm's efforts in the areas of workforce transformation, HR transformation, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and workforce analytics. And throughout her career, Swift has pioneered techniques to reshape organizations for digital and workforce transformation, lead breakthrough projects across industries ranging from manufacturing to professional service to biotech to consumer goods. That's quite a range. And Swift is a, a recognized thought leader on the subject of the future of work in the pandemic era. She's been quoted on the subject in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Economist, Washington Post, Axios, and more. And today, including leadership without losing your soul. And uh, Melissa is the author of a great new book. It's called Work Here Now, Think Like a Human and Build a Powerhouse Workplace. And I cannot say enough good things about this book. So I'll try to spread them out as we go through the show. But Melissa, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here. Uh, I am so glad you're here as well. And, and as I said, I really am a fan of this book. It is uh, a rare combination of insightful with a lot of meaty, practical insights for readers, as well as it's just dang entertaining. So we're gonna, we'll share some of that as we get going. But before that, uh, we want to get to know you a little bit and ask you if you could take us back, and you can take us back as early as you want to, to your earliest memory of yourself as a leader. Oh, that's a good question. So I think probably my earliest memory of myself as a leader um, was getting elected in fifth grade as the class uh, treasurer. And I, I really kind of relished it because there was this very concrete sense of responsibility about it, right? That, you know, we were we were selling stuff and this is where I started to realize it kind of dug, you know, capitalism. Uh, we were selling these little puff balls that we were making. We we're selling friendship bracelets, and I was like toting up all the proceeds and keeping the accounts. And it was just, it was, it was an absolute, you know, blast. I liked having that kind of responsibility on on my shoulders, and I liked being part of the business. And it just got me, got you know, I was raised by two doctors, so I didn't know a lot about the business world, and it kind of got me jazzed about business. Nice. Uh, I love that sense of responsibility that you saw there. It's, it's a shared experience back in my uh, my uh, grade school student council days. We didn't make puffballs, but I do remember we made terrariums uh, and, that we were, and we had all the economics of it and and where we were sourcing the components from and then what we were selling them for and all. It was really the same here. My first introduction to that world of supply chain and components and profit margins and all and all the rest of it. Just fascinating. 
Yeah, it's it's fun stuff. And it's it's interesting because business isn't necessarily something we consciously educate kids about, you know, to the nth degree. But I think a lot of us had those kind of informal moments of, wow, there's just something really interesting and complicated and fun here. Absolutely. Well, and that interesting, complicated and fun, that's definitely describes some aspects of your book. So let's get into it. Uh, this is an awesome read. So full of meaningful, practical suggestions. Again, the name of the book is Work Here Now think like a human and build a powerhouse workplace. And we're talking with the author, Melissa Swift. And uh, Melissa, if it's okay, I want to start at the beginning and just read the opening lines. Is that okay with you? Because I want our our listeners to get this. So here we go. Work sucks. It's important that we start there because part of what's gone wrong across centuries and continents is that we've shied away from this fundamental truth. We've gone after a monstrous problem with carefully chosen words and some light waving of hands when what we actually needed to do was stake it through the heart, cut its head off, stuff the head with garlic, and expose the mangled corpse to the sunlight so it could catch fire and evaporate. Oh my goodness. I, I, I read that opening so many times that, and you could tell listeners, I'm sure I'm smiling ear to ear. I just, it's hysterical and true and you get the passion and i think you learn a little bit about melissa's personality here too so okay (laughs) absolutely you do and the fact that i wrote my senior thesis in college on dracula so right there's a certain precision in that description that that comes from deep knowledge (laughs) well now i want to know if uh those puffballs had any garlic in them (laughs) right (laughs) there's a through line here okay wow so why does work suck those are your opening words work sucks what do you mean Yeah, you know, so it's interesting for something where we spend so much of our lives at work. I think uh, uh, we've set kind of a baseline of just expecting it to not be particularly good. And then that's a very, and it's this kind of strange construct that's persisted through at least centuries, if not millennia of kind of life is supposed to be good and fulfilling, but work is kind of supposed to suck. It's supposed to be good. They call it work for a reason. Yeah, right. There's all this myth making and rhetoric and, you know, why it it, there's fundamentally not necessarily a great reason why work has to suck. And there's ample research showing, uh, you know, that when it doesn't suck, it goes better and we're more productive and, you know, all of society just kind of works better when work works better but we've been stubbornly resistant to sort of improving it. And and so that was my goal in the book was to say, okay, well, you know, I'd, I'd love to say as a consultant, well, you know, we've nailed it and we've got all of the answers, but that, that's an inauthentic point of view. What I did want to do in the book was, okay, we have this, we have this big problem, right? About work sucking. What are some things we can do to start to attack it? What's a whole bunch of starting points? And, and that was really the goal. And there are so many good starting points in this. So, you know, as you're talking about that, uh, I'm thinking to something that comes almost at the end of the book, but it's this way in which kind of as human beings, so many of us in our careers are gone, yeah, this stinks. I don't like this. And then we propagate it. We do it ourselves and we yeah. inflict it on other people, but none of us like it. So why do we keep doing it? Yeah, there, there's something very weird about the kind of, you know, I, I had all this trauma inflicted on me, so I must inflict it on you. And it's interesting because when I talk to, um, you know, some of the other leaders in the working world that I really respect, we share a commitment to not doing that. Mm-hmm. But 
you know what, it, it's hard because there's still plenty of leaders in the, in the workforce, right? We're saying, you know, no, it's gotta, you know, and this is how I got here. Rah, 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 rah. And then there is this, this layer of us going, nope, right? The rain stops here. Everybody here is gonna be dry, right? But being in that position of absorbing all of this stuff and trying not to perpetuate those bad working practices on the next generation, that can be tough and exhausting. And that's what I hear from some of the leaders I respect the most. Oh yeah. And it's, it's tough and it's exhausting. And I would start that not because anybody else is forcing, but because of our own pathways and what we know and our assumptions and all of the things that, that you do a great job. And I want to dive into these, um, helping us explore and become aware of. So, you know, we have our mental pathways and the roads we go down because they're the roads we've always gone down, but we don't have to. And so if we can start that work with ourselves, then we can start to you know, stop the rain, as you say. So let's get into some of these assumptions. There are, uh, you call this the work anxiety monster. Uh, this, these two misdirected assumptions that are the foundation, as you say, of millions of lousy days at work. What are these two assumptions? Yeah. So the assumptions are that people are lazy and people are slow. And we, we do these to ourselves too, to your point about bad mental pathways, right? That we say, okay, you know, my team is lazy and slow and the organization's lazy and slow and I'm lazy and slow. And it's some of the most, the worst damage actually we, we do to ourselves. Yeah. And once you start from kind of that point of view, you start constructing things in just a really sort of gnarly authoritarian way without even meaning to. If the assumption is you kind of have to chase people around to make sure they get things done, that it just doesn't, it, it doesn't make for a pleasant and it doesn't make for a natural way of working. That one of the red threads of the book is that we've kind of lost the plot on what is the right pace of work and that there's likely an efficient frontier of how fast we can work before we start really screwing up. But we don't, we think about it as just linear progression. We don't think about it as an efficient frontier. If we thought about it as an efficient frontier, we could actually improve productivity in many cases by working slower. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's an optimization exercise where there is a curve and somewhere on that curve is we become less productive. And then we've got changing environments and everything else, but let's, let's just take these two assumptions. People are lazy. People are slow. And I love how you're pointing out that, that we can do that, that psychic damage to ourselves first before we're even inflicting it on other people. And you, you took me back and I'd forgotten this, but I had a, uh, uh, I, I kind of a message I've carried in my head, my entire career from high school on is if I were just more organized. And most people, not all, but most people would tell you that I'm the most organized person they know. But in my head, I've been beating myself up for decades going, if I were just more organized, I could just be more, you know, and I had a, a executive coach many years ago who she looked at me and she said, David, is it possible you're plenty organized and you need to stop worrying about that and focus on some other things? And it was the first time I ever kind of got recognized of the damage I was doing to myself and thereby inflicting on others and all the rest of it, because somewhere I had absorbed this message that just wasn't true. Yeah, I think there's there's something really powerful there that what you're telling what you're describing in that anecdote is you didn't know, you know, that we say, OK, in the business world, organization is a good thing. 
you didn't know when to stop. There wasn't a vision of what good looks like, what it means to be a truly organized person. I mean, you're, you're making me flash back to earlier in my career at a prior employer, I actually taught a class on productivity. You know, and I talked about the Pomodoro method and how to use like OneNote, you know, right? All these product, and there's this whole cult around productivity, sure. right? Yeah. It's a sort of related to that subcluster around organization. You know, you can just get infinitely more productive. And I actually had a similar epiphany that just getting things done, right? That I was, again, I was way past that efficient frontier point. There was a point of getting the right amount of things done when they were getting done really well and just pushing beyond it and, and just kind of, you know, pushing widgets across the, the assembly line wasn't truly productive. It was just production, I guess, would be the, the distinction. Mm, that's a good, I love the language play there. It's not productive production. And I'm going back to, for our listeners, if you missed uh, Richard Metcalf uh, a couple episodes back talking about uh, making time for strategy, definitely related here on this topic. It's a good one if you missed it. But um, this idea of w- not just getting things done, but you're talking about, Melissa, getting the right things done and then doing those things well, that's what's most useful um, from a leadership perspective and helping everyone to do those things. So if we've got these these uh, dysfunctional assumptions that people are lazy and people are slow, and those misdirected assumptions have created all of this frustration, headache, and lousy work, millions of lousy work days. As human-centered leaders, as leaders choosing a new way, think like a human, build a powerhouse workplace, what are the assumptions that we can replace those with and start to build from? Well, I think one fundamental assumption is that the people who do the work know the work. Um, And and it's interesting because you see some nice, like a great manifestation of this was the recent, the Google Simplicity Sprint where they asked all Google employees, you know, okay, we need to get more efficient about how we get work done. What would you guys do? And there's, there's a really nice foundational assumption there that, okay, if you're doing the job, you kind of know what the job's about. And it's a really simple, I would connect it back to, I was on a panel um, with the CEO of, of Grayston, right? Where they have open hiring and everybody learns the job on the job. They will hire, you know, anyone who comes in, you know, spending certain checks or whatever. Uh, but th- there's a basic belief that doing the job teaches you the job. Mm-hmm. And then the next sort of corollary to that is if you're doing the job, you know the job. But we often assume, you know, all oh, these people don't know how to get it done. You know, if you start with the assumption that if they're doing the work, they probably mostly get how to do it. And then you see your leadership role as as sort of better enabling them, but you don't ever assume that you have better understanding of their work than they do, that puts you in a really different place. All right. So we're going to start with an assumption that people know their work. They know the work they do. And yeah, there's some fundamental training or some you know skill acquisition or something, but once they've been doing it, they know it and they know it better than you do because they're the closest to it. Yeah. What's another one? What's another assumption, a positive assumption that, uh, that we can start to build from that really is going to orient us in a different direction. I think it, this one is kind of the almost the emotional side of it is that people take pride in their work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this manifests a lot of different ways. And one of the, you know, the, uh, kind of little little red threads in my book is that the working world is mostly keyed to extroverts. 
So, you know, people go around going, oh, I'm amazing at my job, you know, and, and sort of making a big show at it. And we're like, oh, okay, that guy really takes pride in his work. But I think everybody does. You know, in, in general, people just have really different ways of manifesting it. But if you, again, assume that people take pride in their work and, you know, in particular, engage them, use that to engage them a bit more about how they're feeling about it, you know, what they think is going well, what's not going well, you can get a lot of great data from kind of starting the conversation at that point of view of this person takes pride in their work. And I'm going to anchor the conversation there. I think it's a really nice starting place. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, I, I definitely agree with you in that I often think of it from a nature perspective of uh, flowers and trees. Like they want to grow, they want to bloom, they want to, and people have the same thing. People have a natural motivation and intrinsic motivation to do and be and create and solve and, and things. And yeah, people are wired different ways and have that in different aspects and all of that. But most people do want to do well at what they're doing and feel good about what they're doing. That's a natural human thing. Absolutely. I mean, if, if for no other reason that it just makes your day more pleasant, you know, that, that it doesn't always have to be about, you know, I've reached the pinnacle of, you know, creatorhood. Sometimes it's just, I take pride in my job because doing my job well makes my day easier. That's cool too. Yeah. So one of the things that I appreciate about this book is that, so we've got like what we just discussed. There are these fundamental assumptions that, that permeate the kind of the modern workplace uh, that all of the things that happen because of those assumptions. So as leaders, we need to question those assumptions. We need to start reflecting and, and examining those. Well, that's nice to say, but you get really practical, which of course, listeners of the show, we love practical. You get really practical and talk about uh, and you compile a list throughout the book of different strategies to execute and implement all your different suggestions. So these are not always nice, quick strategies, by the way, which again, I appreciate because like they're real. And so I'm looking at, uh, was it strategy? It's not just like a nice quick, Oh, just do that. Cause like strategy 11 is unpack your foundational talent management assumptions. What decisions have you made on the basis of believing folks are lazy or slow? And that is such powerful work. Like every, everybody listening, I, I hope that maybe right now, pause it, come back. We'll be here like, and sit down and write that out for three minutes, five minutes. What decisions have you made on the basis of people being lazy or slow? Wow. When we really look at that, what comes up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it could be anything from what's on your calendar right? Do you have a ton of one-on-one meetings because you feel like you need to check in on people, right? Um, You know, how have you set timelines? How have you assigned work? It it gets really, when you start thinking about those two assumptions, it gets really, you know, kind of fundamental. Your your org structure might reflect a belief that people are lazy or slow. So you might have, you know, too many or too few managers, depending on how you decided to manage on that issue. It's interesting because those assumptions, you know, to your point, are so foundational, they just reverberate through everything. And you kind of have to look holistically from, you know, the very small of literally what's on your calendar every day to the very big, what's the org structure of your organization and everywhere in between. And I I think to your point, it's a really helpful kind of inventorying exercise because when you flip those assumptions on their heads, it's scary how much changes potentially. 
scary really, good. Scary good, right? Absolutely. And and this is one of those where, uh, you know, I love to highlight different aspects and pull out some, and we're going to do that. But this is one of those that I just think is so mind-blowingly powerful if people will do it that I almost hate to add anything else because if if everyone listening, if we were to just take that, and, and you talk about doing it from the C-suite, you talk about doing it as a team leader, um, as a manager, looking at your own leadership, you can just look at your team and your feelings about your team and how you're structuring your time with your team and all the, the elements that you just asked to say, okay, so make that list. What am I doing on the basis of believing folks are lazy or slow? And then flip the script, as you said, and what would it look like if I believed that they know their work better than I do and they want to do a good job, that they care about their performance and, and whatever's meaningful to them. What would I do if I believed that? And what a difference that would make. And then do those things. Like it, it, it sounds so simple, but it's a lot of thinking and a lot of reflecting and, and really, I think, confronting to truly be honest with yourself. Yeah. And I think it's, it's that moment. I love that you use the verb confronting because some of these sort of myths, it's not enough to just kind of say, okay, well, I'm not going to believe in that anymore, right? It really is this kind of hardcore mirror moment of, you know, what are, what are some ways of thinking that I'm engaging in that are kind of pathological and, and how do they affect the people around me? Yeah. You know, and how do they affect me, me myself as well? You know, what am I doing, you know, to your, your earlier anecdote, um, about not feeling organized enough, right? That was you worried that you were lazy and slow in particular ways. Exactly, and I wasn't at all. <laughs> I no. wasn't at all. Uh, and the freedom that that brought me and the ability to start investing and supporting myself and then others you know, along the way. So when you're talking about those opening words of we, what we actually need to do is not light fluffy words, is we gotta stake it through the heart, cut its head off, stuff it with garlic, expose the mangled corpse to the sunlight. This is what we're talking about is starting with our assumptions, starting with what it is that for us, each person fundamentally underpins everything that we're doing at work. And then we can start to rebuild. That's this whole vampire slaying process. I love the metaphor and like, and it really works and uh, you get into it. We're talking with uh, Melissa Swift. The title of the book is Work Here Now, Think Like a Human, and Build a Powerhouse Workplace. And so we've been talking about reflecting on our assumptions and, and how that affects our behavior and everything that we're doing there. Melissa, uh, you, you use there's so many rich phrases in this book, and you obviously love words and, and have fun with them. One of them is the boss baby, uh, the, the, the incarnation of something in the modern workplace called the boss baby. What is a boss baby? What's that all about? Yeah, so it's about how we've kind of, we've developed a very, it, it's, a great, it's a great example of really good intentions gone horribly wrong. So we've developed a very strange relationship in, in many industries across many types of work with our end customer. That we've created this very strange boss baby where the customer is our boss, right? They, they tell us what to do. It's the sort of customer is always right, gone a, a little bit over a cliff, um, but they're also a baby. They can't do anything for themselves. And the combination of those two ways of thinking about your customer it can end up being really toxic uh, for your actual employees. And that, that creates a dynamic where basically the, the customer experience or your, your desire for a positive customer experience has completely overwhelmed your employee experience. 
And guess what? Both groups end up losing, right? Because unhappy employees do not ever make for happy customers, right? I mean, I would challenge anybody to come up with, with an example of long run, truly miserable employees with happy customers. You know, you can get short run effects and, you know, burn through people and, you know, all this crazy stuff. But in the long run, happy employee, happy customer. But we've, and I think it, 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 my, and this may be a very kind of particular Gen X point of view, but my, a little bit of my diagnosis is that during the dot-com era, we got so excited about what technology could do that that's when customer centricity sort of, the garden got a bit overgrown. And we've gone again on this kind of linear path with no consciousness of, you know, when it might've been a good idea to stop of, just, you know, the more we can please the customer, the better, not realizing that, you know, it's about a balanced ecosystem where both employee and, and customer are in a sensible place. So let's, let's talk about that and get, uh, take it to the next level and get a little practical. So if we're, if we're recognizing that, okay, if we take customer centricity, as you said, over the cliff out of, we're no longer optimized, we've taken it too far, just like those assumptions and some of those other things we were talking about that, that can become unhealthy. Um, what do we do practically to start to rein that in some of the strategies that you recommend? Yeah. So one of the strategies I, I talk about in the book is really trying to trace the impact of decisions back to your humans, back to your human workers. And again, it's, it's another one of those that, you know, it, it, someone told me in a session the other day that, you know, these strategies are simple, but they're not easy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great example of one that is simple, but not always easy that in organizations in general, we struggle to trace the impact of decisions, right, let alone tracing them directly back to workers, but you got to kind of get in the rigor of doing that. So, okay, we go from four day shipping to two day shipping. Is that all enabled by the new technological system we just invested in or are there places where if the system breaks down, people are going to be packing boxes all night? Does it mean people have to pack boxes faster because the assembly line is going to be running faster? You know, really tracing through, okay, business decision over here, employee impact over here, and being a bit more rigorous about that. I think it's one of those great examples of no one was out to do the wrong thing. We just weren't intentional. It's like it's, it's rigor and then it's knowing what you're aiming for. I think on, mm -hmm. and back back to this whole conversation we were having around optimization and um, and you, you you started off early mentioning the pace of work and we kind of we just have this ratchet in the modern workplace like faster is always better more is always better better is always better you know <laughs> there's this kind of yeah. and 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 again we do this to ourselves that's an assumption that we have to question that and it's. And I think some people really wrestle with that of, well, gosh, if I don't go faster, the competition is going to beat me. And there's that. Um, I'm curious how you respond to these things, because there's an assumption that I learned early on from a business standpoint that the ground beneath you is always crumbling so that the world, the way business works and the way capitalism works is the ground beneath your feet was stable yesterday, but today it's not. If you don't take the next step, it's going to fall away from beneath, so you better get moving. Um, like that's an assumption, you know, taught and learned in, in business classes and, and things like that. Right. So 
Well, let's just stop there. How would you respond to that kind of an assumption and how does that impact pace and 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 are this whole optimization yes. conversation? Absolutely. Well, think about the image you just described, which I think by the way is unbelievably accurate, right? We were all taught some version of that. In the book, I talk about all this rhetoric about the VUCA, right? You know, the world is crazy and it gets crazier, right? But if you think about what emotion is that sort of imagery trying to trigger? The fear. emotion is fear. Yeah. Right? Now, you know, you're you're a leadership expert. Do you ever see good things coming out of fear? Nope. Is it ever? It's never the right starting place. But to your point, that is the business myth that gets ingrained in all of us. And it just doesn't, you know, if you, you think about that, like I, as you were describing it, I was visualizing it, kind of a cartoon character. I just saw yep. the Super Mario Brothers movie, right? So I'm picturing, you know, Mario walking on crumbling, crumbling bricks, right? And you know, what that person is doing, you know, they're frantic and they're, they're running and they're, it's not an image you would associate with optimal performance. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not the Olympics, it's the Hunger Games. <laughs> oh, that's a nice comparison. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's where, and, and if you look at actually the most effective business moves, it's where they haven't thought that way where the company has taken a step back and said, nope, the world isn't moving under my feet. I move the world. Those are the companies where we say, wow, they really made a difference. But it takes this amazing kind of emotional centeredness, both as leaders and collectively as an organization to do that. Yeah, that's so powerful. Uh, the world isn't moving underneath me. I'm going to move the world. We're going to move the world and doing with the work that we're doing. And the, that emotional centeredness that you're describing, that's just that theme comes through so many ways through your book. I hope that uh, listeners, I really hope you will get this book and, and read it and do this work. I completely agree with the person who told you these strategies. They might be simple. They're not easy, but boy, are they worth doing the work. So powerful. There are, as you're getting into the book so many different and we're not going to go through all of them for time but i do want to highlight a couple of these because i just love these chapter titles <laughs> you've got so many fun uh let's take hippos under the lagoon as an example so hi hippos under the lagoon now the i'll get the subtitle is the powerful effects of immigration migration and incarceration on your workforce so and I'll, I'll let you walk through tell us about hippos under the lagoon what is our metaphor here yeah. So the, the idea was that I read one time and it really stuck with me that the most, the animal that kills the most people in Africa is the hippo. I'm going, what the hippo? You know, I'm thinking of like the ones from Fantasia and the tutus, right? Like these silly ballet dancer hippos. Well, so a lion, you know, it's hanging out in the savannah. You see it coming. And that's the, that's the difference with the hippo. They're hanging out under the water. So even if they're not trying to eat you, and apparently they are kind of vicious, they are sort of kind of trying to eat you, um, but even if they're not, just, you know, you're in a boat and their massive jaw comes right up out of the water, right? You're toast, that's it. And that's why, and, and so I kind of thought about it as a metaphor for some of these forces that really, really kind of impact the workforce, but we just don't, we just don't see them. They're, they're a bit under the water. And so, you know, immigration, migration and incarceration, which, you know, handily at Consultant Stream, they happen to rhyme, um, were three of those forces that I thought were just so powerful that we just were kind of not thinking about enough, right? They're kind of the, the hippos, you know, just lurking there under the water. So 
Melissa, how should we be thinking about the effects of immigration, migration, incarceration? If we're often ignoring them or not thinking about them in, in, in a useful way, how should we be? Yeah, so it's interesting because we we always talk about kind of, you know, there's there's a bit of a talent crisis afoot. And even with all the recent talk of layoffs, et cetera, et cetera, labor markets are fundamentally squeezed, you know, that we, we're still short about 4 million workers in the United States, as a for instance. And it's not going to get any better. Birth rates are coming down. People are participating fewer hours in general in the workforce, which is the equivalent of losing people. You know, eventually you lose people hours is the same as losing people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, but part of it is that we're we're losing the sort of traditional workforce, and so thinking about things like so on, on migration, you know, do we need to? It, it, there's always been this kind of assumption of like, you know, if we build it, they will come, or you know, I can just kind of plunk down in a large city and and wait for talent. And what we're seeing is, or you know, I need to go to a low cost location and get talent where you know it's inexpensive. And we're just seeing all those assumptions challenged that, you know, maybe the companies of the future kind of follow people around as people are becoming, you know, sort of mobile in, in different ways. That The pandemic sort of cut some fundamental threads. So we really need to think about where are the people we need and, you know, who are the people we need? Are we thinking about this properly? Um, you know, are we are we going for kind of ultra high end skill sets when we sometimes need less evolved skills? Okay. And then you know, this group's here geographically and this group's here and really being conscious about the kind of the migratory patterns of talent, but being centered on what the, the talent is. On immigration, I think this is one that we just absolutely do not think about enough. I mean, one in six workers in the United States was born somewhere else. That's a big chunk of the workforce. Hmm. And you know, routinely, this group does not have the greatest working experience. You know, everything from you know, ethnic stereotypes, getting your name mispronounced all the time. There's all these kind of little microaggressions that, you know, we wouldn't say these things about an ethnic group or a gender, but we still readily do it around somebody's national origin. And again, it's one in six people. This isn't a tiny niche group. It's it's a huge chunk of the workforce. Um, and we also sometimes just default to the wrong moves with this group as well. So, okay, well, we need to find somebody who speaks English and train them in this elaborate skill set. Well, no, maybe you find somebody with the skill set and just teach them English. It's probably easier. You know, it, like we, we miss some low hanging fruit a lot of times with foreign born populations. And uh, again, this this through line of questioning our assumptions of asking questions differently of, you know, reframing, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking of all the different ways of, of looking at all the pieces of the puzzle and say, well, if this is the one that we always treat as the variable, what if it's fixed and we treat this as the variable and can we, you know, it just, there's so many different ways to apply that. You know, in, uh, in the book, when you're talking about managing um, workforce groups and, and so on, one of the things that, one of the strategies that you suggest we adopt is to confront our contractor addiction, uh, which, to me, feels pretty bold in this day and age of with so much, uh, you know, so many organizations really relying on on that. And, and some people in the gig economy even saying they prefer it because of what it allows them. I'm curious your perspective on that. Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting because it's 
a lot of times with contractors, we've just, we've got it backward. We have contractors doing the work that full-time employees should do. We have full-time employees doing the work that contractors should do. Sometimes it's, it's just that simple that, you know, let's say there's, there's an emerging skill set that's really going to be deeply needed by the business in the future. We get scared. I can't, I can't hire an FTE to do that. That's so edgy, right? I'll just get some contractors. And then the capability you really need for the future, you know, they're on 1099s. They could just wander off at any point. Similarly, you know, you might have highly commoditized work that's, well, it's just like, we've always kind of done that in-house, you know, but you could just as easily do it with contract populations, um, sometimes even get folks with tons of experience who are, you know, retirees that want to work part, come back and work part time or something like that. You know, you could really do some clever stuff um, and get the work done very efficiently with very engaged employees who are, you know, in, in a contract population. Uh, but there's just not that thoughtfulness of what work needs to be done by contractors. And importantly, that's why it's confronting an addiction. Am I hiring contractors because I'm scared to talk about budgets with my CFO because I'm scared to hire for skills I don't fully understand? You know, back to that theme of fear, a lot of times we're hiring contractors out of fear and not good for the organization, not good for us, and not good for the contractors, right? It doesn't set them up for success or a healthy working experience either. So you got to, you know, again, really think about why is this a contract role? And if you can, if you've got really good logic behind it, things are going to go well. But if you're feeling like your own logic's a little shaky, that's a moment to say, okay, well, maybe I need to have a conversation with my boss about needing new skills in my team. Maybe I need to go back and get some real budget approvals to hire some more people and not be scared of that process. You know, it's, again, it's a moment of confronting. And are we making those decisions from a place of fear or convenience as opposed to truly thinking about, and, and part of what I'm hearing you say in that is what are the true legitimate long-term needs of your team or organization and what's going to contribute to those? And are we making decisions based on that as opposed to either reactivity or short-term thinking? Yeah, absolutely. And it comes back to, and this is one of the big red threads of the book, sometimes admitting that we don't understand our team's work. That, if you can do that thing, I think it just makes you so much more of an effective leader, right? And again, it's freeing, you know, saying, I do not need to understand every detail of what every person does. And, you know, technology is changing and skill sets are changing. And, you know, I, okay, I don't, I don't know it all. I can't, you know, and that's been a perennial theme of leadership development for how many years? I think it's just, we're at a moment where if you can't do that, you're going to get overwhelmed really, really quickly. So fast. It's impossible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And just saying it's impossible. It's like the weight comes off your shoulders. You know, it feels good. Yeah. There's, there is freedom. There's catharsis in that, uh, uh, that paradox of uh, always thinking we can do it all, be it all. You can't, and it will kill you literally emotionally and, yeah. and it's so much bad comes from, but if we can acknowledge, nope, that's impossible. All right. Well, now I'm free to focus on what is most effective uh, for myself and for my team, for my, my company. Yeah. And to learn from your team, you know, learning from your team is, is fun. It's rewarding. It's great for the team and it increases kind of the net knowledge of the organization, but you have to have that moment of humility where you admit you don't know first. 
Absolutely. That's the courage when we, and over here, when we talk about courageous cultures and, and courageous questions and the courage that leaders have to, it is exactly, that's the courage to be vulnerable, to be humble and, and come from that place of learning. Melissa Swift, author of Work Here Now, Think Like a Human and Build a Powerhouse Workplace. Melissa, I've got uh, the time we have a little bit more. I want to draw out of this, this fantastic book, but tell us first, where can we connect with you? Uh, learn more about the book, find the book, find anything else you want us to know about. Tell us where to find you. Yeah, so the book is is available online wherever books are sold. Um, we found them in a few New York City bookstores too. The Strand stocks it, which was a proud moment for me. It's right nice, in my neighborhood. Nice. Um, and a great place is actually to follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm also present on Twitter as well. So those are two, you know, great places to kind of hear what I'm working on. And I really welcome a I welcome a dialogue. Some of my most fun moments so far this year have been people reaching out and saying, this is the stuff in your book that resonated for me. And this was really interesting. And, you know, I, I love it. A book is a little piece of yourself that you put out there in the universe. And then to have the conversation based on it is just the best. All right. We're talking to Melissa Swift, Vampire Slayer, since now I know it's a little bit of your soul put out there. And yes, it is. All right. All right. One more chapter. I got to call out this one. And it, I think it, it ties a bow around everything we've been we've been talking about. But uh, you, you talk about uh, defeating greedy work, which is some uh, a theme that we've been talking about, and the animal, animal farm syndrome. So chapter eight, defeating greedy work and animal farm syndrome, two critical levers for an awesome working culture. And I thought this is a good place to, to summarize our discussion because these themes of greedy work and animal farm syndrome and, and how we, again, we're getting back to assumptions and everything else, deal with these. So let's define these first. What is greedy work and what is animal farm syndrome? All right. So greedy work, I can take no credit for coming up with it. It's actually a term that academics have been using for years. And it's interesting because the original greedy institutions that were studied, it, it actually came from the study of cults. And that should all give us kind of a moment of pause. <laughs> um, and what greedy work is, is when you just start giving up your life to work. You know, work gets greedy. It takes over your mornings. It takes over your evenings. You're working on vacation. You're working on the weekends. And one of the most fascinating data points that I came across in my research on greedy work was that it used to be that if you work too many hours, uh, you made less money. And now we pay a premium for greedy work and we promote people for greedy work. So the most highly sought after jobs, it used to be that, you know, maybe you were a construction worker, you know, working two jobs to make ends meet and you're working 80 hours a week. Now you're, you're a CEO working 100 hours a week. And you know we've we've attached greedy work to those really desirable jobs, and without necessarily again any gain in in CEO performance or in performance in those executive roles, they just take more hours a week to do. Which again, like a moment to ask questions. So that's greedy work. Animal farm syndrome is something I, I cooked up myself in the the you know Melissa lab. Um, and it's, so if you remember, and sorry, I'm going to give away the ending of animal farm, but hopefully you were all assigned it at, <laughs> at some this, point at this point, if you haven't read it, right. your, spoiler <laughs> <Yeah>. alerts, <laughs> right? Before you read my book, read animal farm. It's really powerful. Uh, so there's a moment at the end of, of animal farm where, you know, the, the other animals are looking at the pigs who had originally incited the rebellion against the farmers and the pigs look exactly like the farmers. They've become the crummy bosses that they once hated. And so animal farm syndrome is about all the reasons why, you know, when we sit at entry level and we're like, I am never going to be like that jerk. It's about all the structural reasons why we become that jerk. 
And it's, it's really interesting because, you know, in, in leadership development, people always talk about clean fish, dirty pond, right? That you can do all these wonderful developmental things, but then you put people in environments that shape them in un, unhealthy ways. And so animal farm syndrome is about at each career stage, what's the stuff that's pushing you to do the wrong thing as a leader? Because we, we put people through, you know, kind of early in career, you're pushed to be so linear, middle management, you're so overloaded and siloed. And executives, there are all these kind of norms with things like executive search sort of shaping that executives must sort of be a certain thing. And so there's all this pressure to kind of narrow you. And then people spit out the top of the leadership pipeline. And we're like, why are they not broad minded, creative, free thinking enterprise leaders? Well, you know, because you did everything to squeeze them the whole way up. And that's what animal farm syndrome is. And, and it's something that it's a great area for organizations to take action because you can increase the value of what you're getting out of your leadership development by hitting some of these structural factors at the same time and making sure that you're not teaching people the right behaviors, but then encouraging them to do the wrong thing, if that makes sense. Absolutely. No, it, it, it's a metaphor that really resonated when I, uh, when I came across it. Uh, I'm, I'm curious in, in the time that we have left, if you, if you're, listening right now, somebody's listening and, uh, and they're leading a team or maybe in middle, middle, uh, level of leadership and going, yeah, I get that, Melissa. I've seen it in myself. I have, I have become that, which I said I would never be and, yeah. and so forth. And to have some, yes, we're going to have some grace and realize first that we are affected by the systems we're a part of. So let's acknowledge that. Then we're going to do the work that we started with to start examining our assumptions and start to make some different choices on that. And then what? What recommendations do you have, strategies that you recommend for as we think about affecting the systems and the, the things that are you know, creating some of that squeeze, as you call it, what are some, some things that we can do practically to start addressing that? Yeah, well, some of my favorite strategies are just sort of changing the way that you kind of take in a data set. Sorry to get very kind of geeky about it, but there's a couple of strategies. One is quiet your suck it up voice. So it's when people bring you complaints and stuff, just stop telling them to suck it up. They are literally like they're like a dog with the, you know, bringing you like a bone or something. Yeah, they're bringing you data. Just treat it as data. And, and that's a bit of it, it, it starts to overcome some of that tunnel vision animal farm syndrome stuff where you've basically been, you've been conditioned to block out all of that data from your team and you have to consciously bring it back in and you have to quiet your suck it up voice to do it. Another one is just talking to your team about the everyday experience of work. So I'll give an example from, you know, my own, my own working life, um, you know, that Taught, I constantly talk to my teams, not just about what we're doing, but how we're doing it. You know, okay, well, how is that, you know, deliverable for that client going, well, it's good, we got this, okay, but what's, are you, are there pieces you're finding challenging to work through? What's helping you? What's not helping you? You know, we get pra practical stuff like, well, if we could just go to Microsoft 365, right, and we could tag each other in the document, that would really help. And a lot of times it, it, that's what's interesting is you get some nice practical low hanging fruit where you can just go in and kind of tinker and fix things for your team. And it's, it, you know, and all the way up to, well, you know, Melissa, we might not have the right team composition on this because I'm, I'm feeling like, you know, we might need one more senior person and one fewer junior person and 
talking to them, having that sort of meta conversation about not just the work, but how we're doing the work. Again, it kind of it gets you out of the, the tunnel vision thing of some of the stuff you've been conditioned to do about sort of just sort of being so narrow and kind of being like that honey badger that just keeps charging forward. Um, I think those are those are a couple of strategies that help overcome that. Oh, wonderful. And yet another great visual. <laughs> Gotta love the honey badger. Uh, so quiet the suck it up voice. And that as you're describing quiet the suck it up voice, again, that starts with ourselves. Before I can before I can avoid telling a team member, hey, suck it up, I gotta stop telling myself, hey, just suck it up. And the the metaphor, the, the comparison there that really makes a lot of sense to me is like when we're having a stress reaction or our emotions are firing off. They're there to tell us something's wrong. Something is concerning. It's data from our body saying, hey, something doesn't, isn't working, right? Whatever that is. Well, same thing. When a team member does it, it's giving us that data. Can we treat it as data, not get carried away or reactive to it, good or bad, but take it as information and then be able to look at it. And then the second one to reiterate, create a habit of not just asking, Hey, how's the work going, but, or what's happening here, but how are we doing it? How is, how we're doing it working? And if we can create those consistent habits and pair those, now we're going to have some kind of ongoing opportunities to start recreating and looking at things differently. Do I have that right? Absolutely. Fantastic. All right. Well, Melissa Swift, it has been an absolute delight talking with you again. The name of her book is Work Here Now, Think Like a Human and Build a Powerhouse Workplace. Again, a fantastic book filled with so insights that are not just insightful and going to make such a difference for your leadership, but also a ton of fun to read and really engaging. Melissa, thank you so much for being a guest here with us on Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Oh, it's been our pleasure. All right, listeners. Get out there uh, and you've got so many different choices. I'm going to go with quiet your suck it up voice and be the leader you'd want your boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>